the subject that I was given is walking in love. And first of all, walking is not literal. It's metaphorical. And of course, you sort of instinctively knew that, but the title means that you live a life full of love. So the first thing is, you've got a metaphor. The second thing is, you've got an abstract noun. Because you see, love, you can't touch love. You can't see love. And I'm no grammarian, but I seem to remember from high school that there are two basic types of nouns, and one is concrete, that is something that you can see. The selectern, for example, you can see it, and I'm touching it. It's a concrete noun. But there are certain words, and they're abstract. For example, love. Forgiveness. Affection. And so with that, we want to get into the subject and my portion that I've been favoured with to speak from is 1 John chapter 4, and I'm reading from verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to, lo to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world, so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to fulfillness, to full expression in us. And God has given us a spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we've seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the, to be the um, Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. And someone will take a reading and explain the next few verses, God willing, next Sunday. Now the author John was probably a teenager when he set out to follow the Lord, but the years have gone by, 60 years gone by, and he was an old man now, he was he may have been my age, you know. But he looks back and as he thinks about the past, he still loves his Lord. He still follows his Lord. And one of the great proofs of Christianity is that a person who hears the word of God continues in it. Jesus said, these are my disciples, if you continue in my word. So the years have gone by and he still loves his Lord and he still serves his Lord. And he writes, he goes into a written ministry. One of the interesting things is 
about this time, he probably wrote the book of Revelation. Now, you know, because of the series that was conducted here some time ago, that the book of Revelation was written to the seven churches of Asia. That's that province to the west of what we call Turkey. John, at this time, was actually a resident in Ephesus. And when he writes to the seven churches of Ephesus, seven churches of Asia, including his own church, he said, I have this, the words of Jesus, I have this against you, you have left your first love. And you may have an apostle in your midst. You don't, but you could have. It doesn't make the church perfect. And John, he spoke to his own church members, and he says to them, you've left your first love, quoting Jesus. He also writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, round about that time, and of course, that's what we're thinking about during this time. Now, 1st John is generally called a general epistle. It's not written to one particular person. For example, Paul writing to Timothy. It's a general epistle to all God's people at all times, and that, of course, includes us. Of course, all epistles do. But it's a general epistle, and he's writing to everybody. We do know that somehow within that assembly of Christians, false people had come. And they were teaching false teaching about Jesus, the one whom John loved so much. And, I mean, he had spent three years walking with Jesus, and they ate together. And they journeyed together, and they suffered rebuke together, but he still loved his Lord. And he's writing this letter, and he says, love one another. As you go through the letter, you find the word love used a lot of times, and I'll no doubt make reference to that later. Now, the next point that I just want to make because we're looking at love looked at theologically. That is, what does it mean? And the point that I want to make is that God gives us the ability to love in a special way. And so he says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. The word love appears 50 times in this short letter. And you find that even in the verses that we've just read together, the word love occurs 18 times, so you can't miss the story. You can't miss it. And I'd just like to say, I'd like to ask, you've been a Christian a long time? Do you still love the Lord? Do you still love His people? Do you still love coming to church? Do you still love hearing the Bible read? Do you still love having fellowship with God's people? The love that God gives is a special kind of love. I have here a quotation. It's from a book called, Will Your Prodigal Come Home? And the thing that really hurts people, and I've spoken on the subject two or three times, and it's this matter of, will my son, will my daughter, or my parent, who used to follow the Lord, come back? And in the book, he quotes a lady who says this. She said, I know there is no greater force than love, but we've loved our son until it has broken us. 
we bailed him out of police cells and had drug dealers call at our home and threaten us. He's stolen from us, abused us, and brought us close to the edge of insanity. Sometimes we feel so guilty, but we feel that would have been better if he had died. At least then he'd be safe. But still we love. We cannot help loving. Only God can help us to love like that. And there could be that there's somebody in our congregation this morning and you know that kind of feeling. And you know the experience of love that God gives you even though in many ways that love is tested and abused and despised and yet you continue to love. It was only a couple of weeks ago I was preaching somewhere else and afterwards... A man spoke to me and he was worried about his family. I won't go into details, of course. His son had broken the heart of his mum and dad. He'd been brought up in the church, but he had abandoned the teachings of the church. And I said to the father, do you still love him? And he seemed a bit shocked. And he said, of course, I still love him. I said, and that's how it ought to be. Remember the father of the prodigal, always loved his son, always expected him to come home. But anyway, that's by the way. But God does give us a love that's extraordinary when it's so difficult to love sometimes. And so we find that God gives us the ability to love in a special way, and we find, of course, that God is himself love. Anyone who does not Love does not know God, for God is love. Actually, twice in the portion, you actually find that God is love. I did mention here, I think a couple of weeks ago, that in the little gospel hall in which I was brought up, uh, we had two texts there in front of us. On the left-hand side, God is love, and on the right-hand side, God is light. And as I was thinking about it, I remembered a man, Brother Wallace, Brother Wallace used to get really annoyed by people coming to church late. And so he had another text put, which was put between God is love and God is light, and it was a text. When the hour was come, God, uh, rather, when the hour was come, Jesus sat down with his disciples. Now, we were supposed to feel really bad when we saw that, but I don't suppose many people would realize that he was actually getting at them. But anyway, they're important verses. God is love and God is light. Now in the next slide you actually find that this explains a lot of things because you see the love of God explains creation. I mean why are we here anyway? Why would he create us? I mean we've been a jolly nuisance and sometimes he's been, we would use human terms, frustrated. Why would he continue? Why did he make us? because he wanted someone to love. And right from the beginning, you find the love of God. But I won't... I mean, all these things can be expanded on. Free will. I mean, if God made us so that we had to obey and we had to say we love him, it wouldn't have meant much, but we're given free will. That's a huge subject, which we're not going any further into. And then there's providence. Very often we find people saying, why do bad things happen to good people? 
But sometimes we have to ask, why do good things happen to bad people? And the thing is, that very often in our lives, we find that God in love reaches out to us. I was interested in a story that came from the AA, Alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've got the notes here, in Wisconsin. And there was a man there who was considered to be a classic case of recovery. And he was asked to speak at all kinds of places, and he went to a place called Milwaukee and gave his testimony. But things became bad. He lost his job, and his wife died of cancer. And so he hit the bottle again, and he made his way to Chicago. And he found the basement, what they call saloons, we would probably call a pub, and he ordered a double bourbon on the rocks. And the bartender said, I heard you speak in Milwaukee, and you talked about the recovery from alcohol. Now, the amazing thing is this. It is estimated that there are something like 8,000 saloons or pubs in Chicago. And there are 25,000 bartenders in those pubs. And yet the one man to whom he spoke had heard him speak in Milwaukee. And so he lost all desire for drink and he took his money and walked out. I mean, we can tell stories about God reaching out to us. God doesn't let us alone. We may try to flee like Jonah, but God doesn't let us flee too far, and he follows us. But anyway, redemption, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about that subject. To redeem means to buy back. And the reason that God, or should I say, one explanation, one reason that God has bought us back from sin and for a life of slavery to sin, is because he loves us. And, of course, heaven. St. Augustine said that God loves each of us as if there was only one person to love. And the next point that I want to make under looking at love theologically is that God has proved his extensive love to us. You find that in verses 9 and 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Now, this book, this, they called an epistle, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle, as you know. It just means a letter. But the man who wrote this epistle, John, wrote a good news book, the Gospel of John. Same man. And in his book, in his good news book, the Gospel, he tells about a man called Nicodemus. He was well off. He was prestigious. He was a Bible student. He, had, he was high-ranking in society, but he didn't know if he had eternal life. He came to Jesus one day, one night, and he said, what must I do 
And as our Lord speaks to him, he talks about the fact that we need to be born again by the Spirit of God. And then he says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You may have heard of the name Simon Weisenthal. During the Second World War, he was imprisoned in one of Hitler's concentration camps, subjected to all kinds of indignity and abuse. One day, a nurse from the hospital came to see him. He was out in the parade ground, and she said, come with me. She yanked him with her, and they went into the back, by the back stairs into a ward in the hospital there in the concentration camp. And she introduced him to a man who was covered in yellowed bandages and gauze totally covered his face. He was an officer or had been an officer in the Nazi SS. And he had asked for, he, he, he talked to the nurse and he said to the nurse, are there any Jews still alive? And the nurse said, yes, there are some. He said, well, I want to speak to a Jew. And Simon uh, was a Jew, of course, and he was the one who was called there. And so the man, the officer, could barely speak. He was very, very weak. But he told about the atrocities. He had served on the Russian front, and he talked about some of the atrocities that he saw. He said that on one, and he said himself, he had done it. He said they went into one town, and they got all the Jews in that town, put them into two, a two-storied wooden building, and set fire to the building. And as people jumped out of the top store, they machine-gunned them. And he said, one of the stories, one of the people I could never forget is a young child. He had black hair and very dark eyes. And we shot him as he jumped. And the officer, he was wanting some kind of confession and some kind of forgiveness. And he felt that he could only get it from a Jew. And he said, I'm going to die, but I want to die in peace. Please tell me that I'm forgiven. He talked to him for, he talked to Weisenhall for about two hours. And then he said, please tell me I'm forgiven. I can't die in peace unless I know I'm forgiven. And Weisenthal, he stood there silently, didn't say a word, and walked away. Aren't you glad God didn't walk away from us? And he saw us in our need, and he sent his son, and he showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son, so that we might have eternal life through him. Now, I was brought up in, Christian, in a Christian environment. I've heard about love, and I've heard about eternal life all my life. My parents were converted when I was a little boy. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, we forget about the magnificence and the wonder of eternal life. This is life that never ends. And when we've been there in heaven 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun.
Is that boring? Or is it wonderful? It's wonderful, ladies and gentlemen. You can have eternal life. You can make the decision in the next 15 minutes that can change your eternity. Did you know that? Within 15 minutes from now, as you bow your heart to Christ and invite Him into your life, you can know that when you die, Christ may come before then, but when you die, you'll be with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever. And I better stop. You can have eternal life because God sent His Son and He sent His Son because He loves you. In my devotional readings, I'm going through Acts. And I noticed something the other day that I'd never... I mean, I've read it a lot of times before, but I'd never noticed this verse in Acts 11. And Peter, of course, he was instrumental in opening the kingdom to, first of all, to Jews. You find that the opening pages of Acts, and then to Samaritans, who were sort of half-Jews. And then in chapter 10, there's a great letting down of the sheet, and Peter realizes that the Holy Spirit, that is God's Spirit, was given to Gentiles, also Gentiles being non-Jews. But his Jewish believers didn't like that. I mean, some of them were saying that in order to become a believer, you have to be circumcised. And that wasn't very popular, particularly with the men. But anyway, you know, I mean, there was this controversy. And when Peter went back to Jerusalem, the believers opposed him because they couldn't accept the fact that now Gentiles were believers. And then Peter, or rather we read that when the Jewish believers heard about what God had done and the door had been opened to the Gentiles, quote, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has given the Gentiles, the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Notice that? I didn't even notice. The privilege, the privilege of repenting. We think it's a bit onerous to repent. It's the privilege. And if God has called you to himself, and there has been a time when you said, God, I'm a sinner. I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to live your way from now on. That's a privilege because you know that the Spirit of God is working in your heart if you've never had that experience, if you've never had any regret for sin. Think about it. But it's also a privilege of receiving eternal life. And you say, I know that. And yet so often we don't live like we know that. So anyway, that's a very brief look theologically at what love is as John uses it. Now, the second approach that I want to take to this portion is love looked at in practice. That is, how does it work? All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them and they in God. Now, John, when he's writing, he's very black and white. And we have to read it in the total context of the book. And the way that I understand that verse in a way that relates to my life goes something like this. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God alive in them 
and they are alive in God. You see, when you came to Christ, God in Trinity came to live in your life. But sometimes we live such little, stagnant, insignificant lives, and we live as though God was not alive in us. We live like carnal men and women, that is, buffeted by the flesh only. And yet we have the privilege of God, by His Spirit, living within us. Now, as you go through the book of John, and I did this count up, using the translation that I'm using this morning, the New Living Translation, I found that the word if occurs 22 times. So when you go through, it says if, 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 you know, and you can say, oh, I don't know if I'm born again or not. Now, that is not the purpose of John. John is trying to reassure us, to reassure the true believers that they're safe and safe forever at the same time, it's a challenge that we live a holy life, that we live a life that pleases the Lord. Now, I put together a number of statements, and they're coming up in the next slide, and I tried to put them all on one slide, so the lettering's quite small. I'm not going to read it to you. you. I'm sure that you can all read. And so I'll give you 30 seconds to read it for yourselves. You see, he's not writing so that you can find out whether or not you have eternal life. He's writing so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that good? The next point, as I approach it from this angle, is that love can break down. And that's implied, you know. And dear friends, let us continue to love one another. That word love, it's a verb. And it's in the present tense, and something that goes on, it continues. And so it says, dear friends, let us love, and we just keep on loving, and we keep on loving, and we keep on loving, and we keep on loving. Now, implied in that is the fact that that love can fail, and that love can fall down. And there was a time when we loved God's people, but today we find them boring. There was a time when we loved being at church, but today we find it rather onerous. And other things come in front of going to church. And love can break down. Love for God can break down. And love for one another can break down. And it seems to me that very often it's because of preferences. I mean, sometimes we love our preference more than we love our brother's. And it might be the kind of music, it might be the kind of translation, it might be the time of meeting, it might be anything. And very often among God's people, love breaks down because of preferences and we forget that God loved them. It was Jonathan Swift who said some people have enough religion to love, or should I say, they have enough religion to hate but not enough religion to love. 
And we have to make sure, ladies and gentlemen, that we don't let our preferences block out the love for one another. And sometimes it hurts. And I guess if you've been following the Lord, maybe something that was said or something that was not said has hurt you. And you don't really like following the Lord anymore because you still rankle with that. Actually, I've been thinking a lot about it because I've just finished writing an article on self-pity sets the soul. And sometimes we feel full of self-pity and it saps us off. Sometimes injustice, we see the injustice around us or the injustice that's been acted towards us and we forget that God loved me, you. God loved us so much that he sent his son as a sacrifice to die for us and we're on our way to heaven. We've had the privilege of repentance and we know that heaven is a heart. We're heaven bound and yet some little thing happens and we give up. I won't expand too much on that. Another point is that love is God's gift, and it says, for love comes from God. And of course, the question is, how can we show love to one another? And as I was working through the epistle, I was arrested by this verse too. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to, to stumble. In other words, sometimes we show love by what we don't do. We don't cause others to stumble. So we won't fight with them. We won't create tensions with them unnecessarily because, you see, we don't want to cause someone else to stumble. And I've got a reference, Romans 14, verses 1 to 3, which we won't look up. But if you can remember, you might like to look it up sometime. We love when we forgive one another too, ladies and gentlemen. Quick story, true story, about a woman called Frida Gasumba. She was 14 when they had the Rwandan genocide in 1994. And within the space of 100 days, something like 800,000 people were killed by their fr friends, by their neighbors, by their own family. Particularly the Hutus, as they were after the Tutsis. And Frida, she was a Tutsi, and her whole family, 15, the immediate family, was killed. She was asked if she would pay for the bullet to kill her, or would she die by being clubbed? And she chose to be die by being clubbed. And they clouted her at the back of the head and she dropped and they thought she was dead. All the rest of the family were clubbed to death. Later on, a friend came and pulled her out of that grave and she was covered in blood and mud. She became a believer, but forgiveness was very difficult. And this is what she said, I've condensed what she says. I was growing as a Christian and passionate about God, but there was one topic I did not like to hear preachers talk about. It was the topic of forgiveness. The example the preachers used to give of situations in which they found themselves required to forgive seemed so trivial, even laughable, compared to what happened to me. An argument with a wife, a misunderstanding between friends, 
a broken promise, even the betrayal of infidelity in marriage, all these paled into insignificance when I considered what I had to forgive, what I had to forgive. I had every reason not to forgive. While nothing could take away the peace and joy I had found when I met Jesus that day back in January, my day to day was hard. The loss of my family had left a gaping hole, the payment of which I felt every day. And as if the constant daily ache in my own heart was not enough, I was living in a country which was still reeling from the catastrophic events that had taken place. People were living side by side with the killers who had destroyed their lives. Forgiveness was, however, a subject that would not go away. Once I was willing to face up to the self-pity in my heart, to ask God for his forgiveness and ask the Holy Spirit to change my attitude, I was able to move on in my thinking about forgiveness. Very gradually, over a, pile, a period of months, God brought me to the point where I was able to say, Lord, I want to forgive. You see, love is practical. But you see, people like to talk about what is the definition, and you probably know there are four different Greek words translated in love. Every one of those words, by the way, is attributed and connected to God. But one word is agape, and it means goodwill, selfless goodwill. You're always looking out for the best in someone else. And it's basically a policy, and the policy is this, I will always seek that person's highest good. And your believers, believers to each other, I will always seek their highest good. But... It also is connected to affection. It's also connected to the heart. And at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? And her answer is yes. Any comfort from his love? Yes. Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Yes. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? And so we push on. And I think we'll go to slide number 14. I wonder if you're a believer. Have you accepted the Lord? You can do that right now. I'm not going to ask for a public display, nothing like that. It has to be genuine. It has to be from the heart. And you could pray something like this, Lord. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for me. I now state my belief in him as my Lord and my belief that he is not dead but alive forever. And if relevant, please save me. If you're a believer and you're going to take part in the Lord's Supper now, we're just going to have a mi minute to just pray. Pray a prayer like this. Pray whatever it is the Spirit of God has said to you, shouted at you during these 35 minutes. And you say, Lord, I'm yours. Discern the bread. It's a symbol of the body of Christ. Discern the blood. It's a symbol of the blood of Jesus. And in a minute's time, we'll begin together to participate in this communion and fellowship. And while we pray, could the wardens please come to prepare to disp disperse the elements? Just one minute, personal prayer. And just thank the Lord for the bread and the wine. Thank him for what he's done in your life. Or if you've never accepted the Lord, accept him now. One minute of silent prayer.
together, we thank you for the bread, we thank you for the wine, and we give thanks in the name of your Son, 